Good evening, I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Justice. Seventy-five years ago, in a book on English prisons, George Bernard Shaw described the modern system of criminal justice as an organized attempt to produce white by two blacks. It presents us, Shaw said, with the grotesque spectacle of a judge committing thousands of horrendous crimes in order that thousands of criminals may feel that they've balanced their moral accounts. But if a crime is not to be answered by a retaliatory crime against the offender, how is it to be answered? That's the question posed by tonight's program, the first in a series of three broadcasts about the ideas of Herman Bianchi, a Dutch jurist, poet, historian, and criminologist, who's been one of Europe's most prominent critics of imprisonment as a punishment for crime. There's so much cruelty. And the most cruel people are those who do not realize they're cruel. A judge, when he sends a person to prison for many years, is unbelievably cruel. He doesn't even realize it. Every prison sentence is life term. You never get back your old job. People don't accept you. Imprisoning people as punishment follows from a view of justice as retribution. What Herman Bianchi proposes is a view of justice as reconciliation. Justice, for Bianchi, is not a form of moral accounting. It's an experience. You can only judge whether justice has been done afterwards, when it has been substantiated. That truth came to people, that help came to people, that reconciliation came to people. Then there has been justice. You can only know afterwards. The fruit of justice is peace. And if there is no fruit, then what's the tree without fruit? The relations between formal legal justice and substantial experienced justice have preoccupied Herman Bianchi throughout a long career as a teacher and a writer. Now retired, he was formerly dean of the law school and professor of criminology at the Free University of Amsterdam. As an historian, he has sought the origins of our present system of repressive crime control and tried to uncover ways of doing justice that this repressive system replaced. As a criminologist, he has offered a draft of how a non-punitive system of crime control might work in contemporary circumstances. Those aspects of Bianchi's work will be taken up in the second and the third programs in this series. Tonight, in part one of Justice as Sanctuary, David Cayley considers Herman Bianchi's attempt to introduce into criminology a new vision of justice. Recently, in Quebec, three men were sentenced for the confinement and rape of a teenaged girl. The girl, who was pregnant by one of the men, was held captive for 12 hours, repeatedly assaulted, and at one point dangled over the edge of the balcony of a Quebec City apartment. The case attracted attention because the judge sentenced the men to prison terms of two years less a day, rather than the 10 to 12 years the Crown had asked for.
a number of women's groups expressed outrage at the shortness of the sentence. So let's imagine that these three men, all in their twenties, had been given the sentences the Crown wanted. Then most of us would probably never have heard of the case. But would justice have been done? The likelihood of rape diminished. The offenders corrected. The victims' wounds healed. These questions expose the problems that imprisonment tends to hide. Most citizens certainly want offenders punished. But few, I think, really believe that such punishment deters crime, rehabilitates offenders, or restores the victim's dignity and confidence. Who can believe that acts this repulsive and degraded were committed in view of likely consequences? Who thinks that if these men were held for ten years and then released, still in their thirties, and with few, if any, remaining social supports or controls, they would then be more fit to live in society than when they entered the prison? Who wants to spend the million dollars it would cost to maintain and guard them in a federal penitentiary for that long? These questions are not intended to minimize the ugliness or the gravity of the crime. They're meant only to suggest that conceiving justice as a calculation of the correct amount of prison time begs a lot of questions. It overlooks the social milieu which produced these events and might produce more of the same. It leaves unconsidered the effect public confrontation with their actions has had on these men. Has the shock of seeing their own evil in the light of day produced some opening to the good, or are they unrepentant? And it fails to ask whether there are any resources in the families or communities of these men that might help to turn them away from their viciousness. These evasions are hidden behind the blank wall of the prison, in a place that is, in a sense, no place. When the prison gates close, justice is seen to have been done, and until there's a riot or the prisoner is released, there's an end of the matter. Prisons, in short, won't bear much thinking about. They're meant to give the offender his just desert. Their collateral effects on their inmates, their staff, and the society that must presently readmit their graduates are not usually weighed in the scales by which we traditionally picture justice. Prisons represent justice, but enact injustice. This is the dilemma at the heart of penal law and the germ from which Herman Bianchi's argument for penal abolition has grown. He acknowledges that dangerous people ought to be held in custody so long as they threaten public safety. But he denies, in the words of a proverb my grandmother taught me, that two wrongs can ever make a right. Justice for him must be more than a necessary evil. It must itself be good. Herman Bianchi's quest for a more sufficient and satisfactory account of justice first came to my notice through a book called Justice as Sanctuary, which he brought out in English in 1994. The title refers to the old practice of allowing criminals a safe place, or sanctuary, from which to seek a way of redressing whatever harm they had done, a practice still extant in some parts of Europe up to the end of the 18th century. I was impressed by the historical and theological depth of Bianchi's argument for the restriction of imprisonment. So I wrote to him at the Amsterdam address furnished by his publisher to ask whether he would be willing to do an interview. He responded that in 1989 
he had retired from his position as professor of criminology at the Free University of Amsterdam, leaving criminology behind and now devoting himself almost entirely to literary writing. A volume of his poems, he said, had been published in English in 1991 under a pseudonym that distinguished the artist from the sociologist. However, if I wished, he would be quite willing to make an exception and discuss criminology with me for a few days. At the end of May 1997, he received me at his snug converted farmhouse in the northern province of Friesland, which has been his home away from Amsterdam for many years. There, over two days, I recorded the conversations on which this series of broadcasts is based. Tonight's program traces the development of Bianchi's thinking from his incarceration in a German concentration camp in occupied Holland in 1944 to the publication in 1964 of the book, much discussed in the Netherlands, in which he, in effect, came out as a penal abolitionist. But before coming to that, I want to begin with two stories he told me, stories that I think frame the question with which these programs are concerned. A friend of mine was an attorney and advocate in Amsterdam, and I knew him still from the university. And one day he told me his story. He had two sons. His oldest son had fallen in love with a girl, but there was another lover. And the other lover killed the son of the attorney. It was what the French call a crime passionnel. And he told me what happened. He said, the same evening after it had happened, my other son said, I'm going to kill that fellow. <laughs> and, and my daughter said, oh. And, my and I realized that the other lover well, had not only killed my son, he was killing all of us because of our vengeance feelings. And that's, that's fatal to your soul. And he thought, how can I find a solution? How can I find a solution? And he thought, well, the next day or two days later, after two sleepless nights, I thought, I have the solution. I must speak to that lover. He was in prison. So he contacted the public prosecutor and said, can I see uh, that, that boy who killed my son? Well, said the public prosecutor, you're crazy, but I can stop you. Do what you want. He said, and I went to the cell where the boy was sitting, the lover. I didn't know what to say, neither did he. We've been sitting there for half an hour without speaking. I left. Then a few days later, I said, I go again. Then the lover said, well, the, the criminal said, I feel so sorry. He said that we both wept. <laughs> I almost stopped weeping. So this is how it should be, you know, but it never happens. He said, and then, uh, then my, my wife and my daughter, and my other son, have also visited him. We've prayed together. This is the solution. Even if the lover would be in prison for a couple of years, that won't do harm to his soul. Then it's good punishment. Better would be if he said, all right, I joined the flying doctors in Africa, I'm going to do a lot of good things to plague sufferers in Africa. So you know, that would be better, yeah. would be better, you know, exposing himself to the plague, you know, for what he's done. That's penitence, not sitting in the cell and quarreling with the other prisoners. 
Punishment can be called good in this case, even if penance would be better, because punishment here is aligned with the will of the offender and operates in a context of healing and reconciliation. A second story points in a different direction. Years ago, about ten years ago, I believe I was telephoned by a woman in Amsterdam, a woman who spoke Dutch with an accent. And she said, uh, I was born in Germany, but I'm married to a Dutchman. I live here. But I want to talk with you about my father. Can I meet you somewhere? I said, all right, let's drink a cup of coffee somewhere in a restaurant. So we went to a restaurant. He said, my father is an engineer, and I've never understood him. One day he kidnapped a girl, a little girl, from rich parents. And in spite of the fact that he was an engineer and has a good salary, so he's not poor, he wanted the ransom of one million D-mark or something. He had done it one or two days before Christmas, and so it was a famous case in Germany because during the Christmas days, police were trying to find him. They found him eventually, and the girl was dead. It killed her. So the man got life term. And she said, uh, I'm traveling once a month. It's after all my father. I visit him once a month. Now he has heard about you because your books have been translated in German. He has heard about them. He would much like to meet you. I said, well, what can I do? I can't do anything. I said, no, I don't feel like that at all. Why should I? But then she phoned me again once, a few weeks later, and she said, have you still sorted over? I said, all right, I don't know what I can do, but next month I'm traveling to Switzerland by car. The man is in a prison in Mannheim, so I can go along Mannheim. And I was there and I met the man. Now, I didn't get the opportunity to speak. He was speaking all the time. And he was criticizing the German prison system and said, it's, it's all for this, and all for that, and all for this, and all for that. And after a quarter of an hour, I said, now stop, let me now please say something. Perhaps I agree with you about the prison system. It's not worse than the, the prison system in Holland or France, but all, all prison systems are bad, I agree with you. But I thought you wanted to talk about what you've done. Have you written letters to the parents of that girl? Have you? No, I didn't ask you to come for that. I wanted to discuss prison systems with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> bye bye. I feel that I can't do anything. This man, his mind is gone completely astray. He's completely without any feelings of compassion, nothing of the kind. Nothing. I thought that he wanted to, to do some reconciliation with those parents, and I would have gladly helped him in that respect. But, uh, but that was my experience. So some, with some people, it simply doesn't work. And they are very dangerous, and we have to protect ourselves against violence. So there are two prisons, and they will remain necessary forever. The prisons for very, very dangerous people, and the second reason for a prison is those people who have received the opportunity to 
do penitence, to come to reconciliation, to settle the dispute, and refuse, refuse, refuse. And well, there is no other solution than the prison. Those are the two types of prisons. All the rest should be abolished. These two stories present Herman Bianchi's doctrine in a nutshell. Prisons are a necessary last resort in the interests of public security, but they should be used only where there is no alternative. Redress was once the primary response to criminal injury. What Bianchi has tried to understand is how it came to be replaced by exemplary punishment and how old ideas, like sanctuary, might be redeployed in a new, more civil account of justice. Herman Bianchi was born and grew up in the Dutch port city of Rotterdam. When he was just a boy of 16, the city was bombed. It was at 2.30 in the afternoon on the 14th of May 1940. And I remember that bombing as if it was yesterday. The whole city in flames. And uh, although our house was not bombed, so we, we survived, no problem. But then began five years of occupation, the horror of a German occupation for five years. In 1944, I've been arrested by the Germans. I was two months in prison, and then I was taken to a concentration camp in Holland, in the Netherlands, a German concentration camp, and I stayed there until November 44. Great suffering. Yeah, and then I was released by an intervention of the Swedish Red Cross. So about 25 people who were in a very bad state of health and who were in the eyes of the German not that dangerous. I wasn't, uh, they didn't even know what I had done, only that I was in the house that was raided. That's all they knew. So 25 people were released and we were taken by a Red Cross car, taken to The Hague, and there I was released. All the other people in the camp were taken to Germany and most of them never came back. You were arrested for resistance? Well, hardly. It was so little. It, it just happened to be that uh, I was uh, then uh, 19 years old and uh, the starvation was beginning, you know, in the country. Very bad food situation. The Germans were taking away everything and uh, they just didn't mind that we were starving. And so uh, I met some people who said, if you bring by train, train was still running, so if you take little uh, notes and packages to Amsterdam now and again, because you're young, so the, the Germans may overlook you, and then you get a good meal. So uh, I went to Amsterdam, and there was, that was resistance people who, uh, who had good food in one way or another, and uh, so I got a good meal and went back to Rotterdam. That was all my resistance. I never knew what was in those packages. And then one day I arrived in Amsterdam and then there was a curfew that evening because a German military had been killed somewhere and so I couldn't go back. And so I stayed there and that night the house was raided by the Germans, so I was also taken to prison. Uh, all the other people in that house, have I've never seen them back, never seen them again. What were the conditions in the concentration camp? Bad. 
And who was at this one that you were at? Anyone who did anything the Germans disliked. And because it was no real justice at all, you were not sentenced to concentration camp. You were just locked in, yeah. locked away. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a concentration camp. Yeah. My parents had given up hope that I was still alive, so when I rang the doorbell, you could not have correspondence with your family when you were in a concentration camp in Manchin. So they thought I was dead, and I, I think that my mother fainted when she saw me. And then she wept and took me big as I was, as a boy of, uh, of 19, took me on her lap and wept for a long, long time. <laughs> what I have inherited from the concentration camp was fear. You know that the whole Dutch judiciary collaborated with the Germans? There were several members of the Supreme Court were Jewish. They were arrested by the Germans immediately. No protest. The whole Supreme Court should have quitted. Out of protest. Just went on. I was in the prison, a Dutch prison, in 1944. The staff was Dutch. They worked for the Germans. Imprisoned me. So I had fear for judiciary, for prisons, and perhaps it was, I could not get rid of, the, I tried to get rid of the concentration camp by studying history and, and Dutch language, poetry. I always have had a great love for poetry. And that's why I thought when I retired, I've done my duty. It was a hard duty. It was awful. I've done it. Please give me a few years with poetry and the beauty of the world. That's what I'm doing now. I work on art history, I work on poetry, but I don't want to hear the word prison anymore. I've done my duty to fight against it. Perhaps it, it was even to protect myself, you know. I remember in Canada that uh, there was a man in, in Calgary and we went to Edmonton because I had been invited to give a lecture there. And we passed a prison, a modern prison. Now in Canada and the United States, they have the evil taste to build prisons that look like concentration camps, those watchtowers, you know. That's exactly concentration camp. Then I think, how dare they, you know, to construct prisons that look like concentration camps. And I said, drive on. It makes me mad to see that. It makes me mad to see such an, a precinct, you know, with, with watchtowers, with heavily gunned people on the top of it. It's a concentration camp. That's where I was myself. Imagine, imagine immediately that I would be in there, not as a governor, but as a prisoner. I'm so scared for it. It's awful. After the war, Hermann Bianchi began his studies at the Free University of Amsterdam. He liked the scholarly life and hoped to become a professor, but had initially no inclination towards criminology. He was interested in history, literature, languages, and law, what made him consider criminology was the fact that his university was then about to create a new chair in this field, and he was encouraged to prepare himself for the position. Weighing opportunity against disinclination, he reluctantly agreed. The dominant voice in Dutch criminology at the time was the Institute of Criminology at the University of Utrecht. 
There, the existentialist philosophy of Heidegger was providing a new perspective on the institutions of crime control. Since there were no lectures in criminology at the Free University before his own appointment, Bianchi traveled to Utrecht to follow the lectures of Professor Kempe, a leading member of the Utrecht School. He believed that he had done the great discovery of the century in criminology. That's what he thought. He saw perspectives so wide that he, it even scared him. Such wonderful visions he had of existentialist criminology. And the idea was that a judge so far, he thought, so far was just a kind of a mouse that pronounces the words of the law. That is a saying of Montesquieu, just the mouse who pronounces the words of the law. And he said, that's wrong. He is a human being, and he has to do with another human being, the criminal. In a way, they should love one another as human beings, because they are together thrown into this world. That's an expression of the German existentialist philosopher Heidegger. The judge and his criminal are two human beings who should understand one another and love one another in an existential love. They are both thrown into this world. And the judge may thank God every day for not being a criminal, and the criminal should thank God for not being a judge. <laughs> because what stands in the Bible, he was non-religious, but he was also very much interested in religion. He's in, somewhere in the Old Testament, and the king of Israel appoints judges all over the realm. Then he addresses the judges. He has appointed everywhere. And he said, ye judges, all ye judges, you're almost gods. I know that. That's great responsibility. He wanted to elevate judges to what they really are, you know, people who are together with those criminals and find solutions. And his idea was a judge who would go to prison every day to look after his prisoner, after his criminal. I thought that was a wonderful idea. And then for a while I thought, yes, when I learned the ideas of Kemper, then I thought perhaps something good can come out of criminology. Perhaps. Let me give it a try. Along these lines, I'm willing to continue with criminology. One fruit of the continuation of Bianchi's studies was the dissertation by which he qualified himself as professor at the Free University. It was published in 1956 in his already very good English under the title position and subject matter of criminology. His revulsion against imprisonment is already evident in his statement that there is no situation more inhuman. But the main purpose of this first book was to try to expand the philosophical and theological horizons of criminology. This involved an attack on positivism, or the assumption that criminology has to do with a set of neutral material facts that can simply be taken for granted and studied with the methods of the physical sciences. Crime, in Bianchi's existentialist language, was a form of bad faith, a flight from personality, a deficient way of designing the world. It could never be separated from the universal human predicament 
or considered apart from the mysteries of sin and redemption. A broader, more ample consideration of criminology's subject matter was therefore necessary. All my writings have been manifestos, in a way. Lots of people say, you write sermons, you, you are preaching, you are not teaching, you are preaching. And all, whatever you write is a manifesto. I wanted to... Uh, what I thought, I found criminology is so unbelievably stupid when I went into it in the 50s. I thought I'm trying to do something about it, to use all my philosophical and theological and literary knowledge and bring it into criminology, to, to lift it to a higher level. You cannot just say, uh, what's the cause of crime, because there are no causes of, there are no causes of crime. It's nonsense to look for it. In the beginning of the century, they said, well, uh, there is such a lot of poverty, you know, in the big cities and so on. That's the cause of crime. Now, all the poverty is gone. The country has never been so wealthy throughout history. Lots of criminality. So it's not poverty. Then you say, well, already uh, Plato said, the, the causes of crime are either poverty or wealth. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All the drugs criminality, that's an, uh, an opportunity criminality because the authorities were so stupid to, uh, to make drugs illegal. So that you get black market. That's exactly what they wanted. <laughs> but the cause of crime, well, that's sin. That's Calvin gave already the good answer. Man is created evil. And what, what John Bradley said, the, the, the English Puritan in the 17th century, when he saw, he looked out of the window and he saw a man taken to be hanged on the scaffold. And he said, there, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradley. You know? It is just, we would say, either coincidence or the will of God that I'm not a criminal, because we're all criminals. Only a few you know, circumstances prevent us from becoming criminal. Or our crimes have not been detected. For all the fraud we are doing and uh, the little thefts we have been doing since we were a little boy, never been detected. And we are honest citizens. Why? Why are we not detected and others are? Because it's stupid? Yes. Lots of criminals are stupid. Murder is hardly ever uh, found out because if you are a clever murderer, you commit a perfect crime, and perfect crimes do happen. Lots. Lots. How many people disappear? Never seen again. What has happened to them? In this country, hundreds a year. They leave the house in the morning and never come back. Where are they? Or have they gone to, to Brasilia or somewhere now? They are not all going to Argentina or China or somewhere. No, they disappear, so that's the perfect crime. Those people that are called, uh, well, uh, for homicide are usually people who commit a homicide uh, not preconceived, but it just happens. And then they have not taken the precautions that would prevent them from being detected, you know. Yeah. And even then, only one in twelve is, is found the criminal. Even then, majority of people of uh, the criminals who committed homicide are never found. Crime, in Bianchi's view is a disposition from which none of us are ever entirely free. Those who become prisoners differ from their fellow citizens more by circumstances than by character. This idea drew on Bianchi's readings in existentialism, with its view of the world as a moral tangle in which none can escape guilt and responsibility. But it also grew out of the Calvinist piety in which his upbringing was steeped.
My mother was a very pious, Dutch Reformed uh, person. My father was Catholic, but never went to church. Didn't interest him. So I got a very religious education, but my mother was not militant. She would pray on her knees before her bed, before she went to sleep, that sort of thing. She never bored it about, did not trumpet it around, you know, like a lot of Protestants do, did. And so uh, she wanted me to become a minister in the church. And uh, because I got that religious uh, education, I know the Bible by heart almost, you know. I know I know exactly where it is, I can find it, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, I never go to church. I mean, I'm not an, uh, an old-fashioned believer. But I've always be- remained a kind of an amateur theologian. Uh, there is another thing what took me to the study of religion just is the fact that in Western Europe and North America, with that strong Christian tradition behind it, criminal law as we know it, retributive criminal law, is very often uh, uh, justified by still religious arguments. Retribution, well, doesn't the Lord want us to retribute evil? Understanding that contemporary criminal justice practices have grown from sometimes buried theological roots led Bianchi towards what he would later call his homeopathic method. If these practices rested on a diseased understanding of the Judeo-Christian religious heritage, he reasoned, then perhaps the disease could be cured by conceptions retrieved from the same tradition. This direction in his thinking was supported and furthered right at the beginning of his teaching career by a spirit that was then moving in the Protestant churches of the Netherlands. In the early 60s, in uh, the Protestant churches in this country, there was a rapidly increasing uh, interest in uh, Jewish learning. Quite a few uh, ministers in the Protestant churches in the Netherlands uh, began to pay, in their sermons, pay a lot of attention to Jewish tradition, Jewish learning. To give an example, uh, when uh, pronouncing the blessing during the service, they would no longer say Jesus Christ, they would say Yeshua of Nazareth. So pronounce the the name of Jesus in the Hebrew way. Or uh, they would say, uh, they would no longer use the word Old Testament, but Tanakh, which is the Jewish word for it. Then there was a minister in the Protestant church in Amsterdam who... uh, really did a lot to, uh, to explain what the meaning of the Old Testament was, of its general concepts. And he said, the Christians have always been so arrogant, they stole the sacred book from the Jews and then said, uh, we have a better interpretation than you have. You don't understand your own book. That was always the attitude. And now, Quite a few, and gradually it also happened in the Roman Catholic Church, but much less. But particularly in the Protestant Church. And don't forget that the Calvinist churches uh, were always uh, more Judaism-oriented than the other, uh, the other ones. Very much so. Already in the 17th century, uh, uh, Dutch theologians were interested in Jewish learning. But there was a strong impetus in, after, in the 60s, you know, and also suddenly 
it took uh, the Western Europeans uh, 20 years to really understand what had happened, that their efforts to protect the Jews had not gone far enough, you know. So they realized that, so guilt feelings, and uh, those are our fellow human beings around us, the family of Jesus Christ, who always misunderstood them, we maltreated them, we didn't help them, etc., etc. So, uh, and uh, I met the rabbi of the liberal Jewish community in Amsterdam, and he invited me a lot at his home, and uh, we had Friday evening meals, the Sabbath meals there together, and... And that interested me extremely much. Through this rabbi, Bianchi was introduced to a conception of justice that was to become central in his thought. It was called sedica, the biblical term that corresponds to English's Latin-derived word justice. Bianchi adopted the Hebrew word because he thought that translating it would introduce misleading modern assumptions and give an air of false familiarity to a conception that was actually profoundly alien to those assumptions. Justice was classically defined by Aristotle as giving everyone his due. Thomas Aquinas repeated the same definition in the Middle Ages, as did Kant and Hegel in the modern period. All agreed that justice consists in answering a wrong with the retribution due to it. But what is a criminal's due? And in what sense does prison time actually correspond to the injury it ostensibly answers? These questions led Bianchi to reject the image of justice as a scales. Tzedeka offered an alternative, an image of justice as an endless, never fully achieved reaching after peace and reconciliation. Instead of the silly expression, uh, bring people to justice, I would say, bring tzedakah to people. <laughs> you know, that is much better. Bring tzedakah to people. Bring people together. It is the communicative uh, concept. It's well, not separation, it's bringing people together. For instance, bring criminal and victim together and try to find tzedakah in the relation. Try to make a relation between criminal and victim, you know, instead of doing nothing for the victim and punishing the criminal, which is a stupid idea, but try to bring truth and love, reconciliation, all these sort of concepts. And so I use the word tzedakah justice, you know, because lots of people uh, do not know the word of uh, tzedakah. Tzedakah pointed towards the experience of justice and away from the merely formal and procedural considerations that rule modern courts of law. It signified communal concord, not just the performance of a stately ritual. The idea of justice as enforced order rather than negotiated settlement, Bianchi came to see, was partly a result of mistranslation from the Bible. Law in the Western tradition had been seen as an implacable and unbending institution, and this understanding had, in effect, been read back into the Mosaic law through doubtful translation. My great discovery was that in the 16th and 17th century, in Protestant countries like England, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, there came new Bible translations, like the Jamesian version in England. We have the state general version in the Netherlands, which was the official Bible translation of 1630. And they, they said, well, the Roman Catholic Church has always fooled you with the Bible. We are going to bring you the true translation. But they didn't. 
Very often, for instance, the word retribution does not exist in Hebrew, but very often they translate it with the vengeance is mine, I shall retribute, for instance. Both in the English and in the Dutch versions of the Bible translations, they bring the word retribute or retaliate, where the, um, the, the, the Hebrew word is hishlim, which has to do with shalom, peace. So uh, the Lord in heaven doesn't say, I shall retribute. No, he said, I'll make peace. Bianchi's great teacher in the matter of Bible translation was the eminent German-Jewish religious scholar Martin Buber. Buber, along with Franz Rosenzweig, had undertaken in 1925 a modern German translation of the Hebrew Bible, a project he would not complete until 1961, four years before his death. Buber and Rosenzweig's translation was criticized in some quarters as more Hebraic than German, but what they wanted was a revelation of the book's original voice, free of national, literary, and historical encrustations. Do we mean a book, Buber wrote in 1926? No, we mean a voice. In order to make this voice audible, they freely coined new words and put the disclosure of meaning ahead of the niceties of German literary style. Bianchi met Buber in Amsterdam in the early 60s, and relied on Buber's translation for his definition of Sedeca justice. The only trustworthy translation of the Old Testament of Tanakh is Buber's translation. He gives the right translation. Uh, for instance, uh, he tran- uses, he found out that the German language, the word Gerechtigkeit, doesn't fit in. Gerechtigkeit, justice. Because then you bring the whole rum, 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 bum of Thomas Aquinas into the discussion. You're lost. You cannot use it. So I dropped, also in English, I dropped the word justice. Don't use it. Because you're bringing all kinds of wrong thoughts, you know, that blur your thinking. And so he used, for instance, the word bewahrheitung, bring truth. Tzedekah means to bring truth. And he used the word, he coined the word bewahrheitung. The word didn't exist in German. He made new words in German. He was a great artist of language. In Justice as Sanctuary, Bianchi proposes several English equivalents to Buber's German translations of Sedeca. One is release from guilt, a term which highlights the tendency of Western justice systems to stigmatize offenders permanently. The taint of conviction and imprisonment rarely washes away. Powerful rituals certify deviance, but there are none to decertify it and signify reacceptance in society. Tzedekah, therefore, must involve some practical way to achieve absolution. A second criterion Bianchi calls confirmation of truth. This does not just mean ascertaining what happened. Truth, as Bianchi conceives it, is relational, a matter of dialogue. Its tests are sincerity and reliability, and not just conformity to facts. Truth is not, like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas said, something is true or it's not true. Tertium non dato, there is no third possibility. It's true or not true. No, lots of things can be half true, a little bit true, or true in, in, in one, at one occasion and not true at another occasion. What's a lie? If during the war you were hiding Jews in your home and uh, uh, a German would have knocked on the door and said, do you have Jews? Of course you said no. It was a lie. 
But it was in fact the truth, because you were protecting someone with your truth. You did truth to a Jew hiding in your house. No, that's truth. That's justice. Although you were lying. No, you weren't lying. <laughs> you see, that is, uh, there is a, not only a tertium datur, but many, there are many possibilities between true and not true. Bianchi's third and final criterion of Seneca justice he calls substantiation. Justice has been substantiated when no one has been lied to or given a stone for bread, when victims have been fully heard and offenders offered the possibility of redress and release. It is known not by its intentions or forms, but by its fruits. You can only judge whether justice has been done afterwards when it has been substantiated, that truth came to people, that help came to people, that reconciliation came to people. Then there has been justice. You can only know afterwards. Justice has to be substantiated. If there is no peace in the end, there hasn't been justice. If there has been an atrocious crime, homicide, and the criminal goes to prison for a couple of years, or is even hanged, there is no justice, because there is no peace in the end. Is the victim happy? Happier than before? No, it doesn't help him. If you help the victim to satisfy his retributive feelings, there is no peace. So the fruit of justice is peace. And if there is no fruit, then what's the tree without fruit? Western penal justice, in Herman Bianchi's view, mixes contradictory conceptions of law. The classical Greco-Roman civilization saw law as the expression of an impersonal cosmic order. The Bible conceives law as the expression of a living will. According to Martin Buber, even the Ten Commandments should not be understood as an impersonal code of law, but as a statement of the conditions of a personal relationship addressed by an I to a thou. Mixing these conceptions led Western societies to interpret biblical injunctions as laws in the classical sense. Justice came to be understood as the enforcement of authoritative laws, and punishment became imperative when a law had been violated. The renewed and purified understanding of biblical concepts that Bianchi was exposed to in the early 60s allowed him to begin prying these two traditions apart. He stepped beyond his youthful hopes for a humanization of criminal justice, and in 1964 published a book which challenged the very idea of punishment. It was called, in Dutch, The Ethics of Punishing, and it fit the moment of its publication perfectly. My book right coincided with the free speech movement in the Netherlands, and the provost, and Holland was one of the leading nations of the feelings of the 60s, you know, free speech, it's never been as strong as here. And uh, I experienced that as a great liberation in the 60s. I was very much involved in it. I mean, I didn't go into the street, I was already a professor, 
and I was a uh, well a drawing room uh, leftist, you know. But uh, always been a drawing room leftist. But it influenced me a lot. So first I had my religious ideas, then I had my existentialist ideas, and then came the ideas of the new left of the 60s, which influenced me a lot. And that is already found in that book on the ethics of punishing, as I called it. And there I came with my blow attack on imprisonment, my blow attack on criminal law. And that was like a bomb in the country. It was discussed in the media, in weeklies, on television. It made me suddenly a well-known person in the country. And I had not expected that at all. I was not even so pleased with it, because from then on, I was asked to come on, on the radio, on television. I even got a column in a weekly, a leftist weekly, and uh, twice a month or so, I, uh, or once a month, I wrote a column on criminal law, and promoting my ideas, of course. Despite the receptive mood that greeted Bianchi's book, he would later conclude that he had written somewhat prematurely, as he says in the introduction to Justice as Sanctuary. I never doubted that my opposition to the punitive system was justified, he goes on, and I knew I was on the right track in laying bare the utterly mistaken religious arguments conventionally used in favor of it. But the question asked by some readers, what are your alternatives, was valid. One consequence was, that he didn't get far with his intended audience. The theologians were jubilant. The lawyer said, man's crazy. And I even remember, it was still in the, the earlier days of television. We only had one channel in 1964, television channel. And in those days, there was still an, a vicar in the, in, uh, at night, at 11 o'clock, who gave a closure of the day with theological, short theological sermon. They don't do that any longer, but they still did in the early 60s. And I remember that one evening he said, Friends, my dear friends, a wonderful book has been written by a professor in law at the Free University. It's this book, look at it. This is so fine, this is so beautiful. He really brings the word of God as it should be. It had not been in my intention to bring the Lord of God. I didn't want to. I wanted to address lawyers, legal thinkers, legal philosophers. They did not accept it. And I always, since, ever since, kept the image among lawyers that I was a half-theologian, trying to bring a nonsensical concept of theology into legal discussions. And they said, theology is there, law is there, and the twins shall never meet. Bianchi had based his argument on the idea that humankind is innately religious, and therefore crime control practices must ultimately be based on religious beliefs. Whether we like it or not, he wrote later in Justice's Sanctuary, our system of crime control has such deep roots in the ethical ground of our culture that an examination of religious thought is almost unavoidable. For Bianchi, it followed that it would be better to make conscious use of reformed and reconsidered religious principles than to continue under the unconscious influence of old religious ideology. This was an argument his law colleagues simply couldn't accept. It was too fundamental a challenge to their profession. Liberal society, as Canadian philosopher George Grant has said, 
holds apart love and justice. Justice, in this modern view, is a social contract on whose unfailing execution the good order of society depends. Ideally, it should function as a great machine, its adversarial procedures orchestrating justice in the same way that Adam Smith's invisible hand conjures an optimal organization of economic life out of the free play of self-interest. Citizens obey the law not because they are called to justice, but because it's in their interest. Prompt, predictable punishment shows them that they have calculated this interest correctly. Consequently, there can be no place in such a mechanism for repentance, forgiveness, or other uncertain and unpredictable dispositions of the heart. This was Bianchi's dilemma. He was the dean of a law school, but he was acclaimed by theologians and dismissed as a dreamer by his more hard-headed colleagues. His efforts to give his arguments more bite led him in two directions. First, into history and anthropology, where he studied pre-modern law practices and traced the origins of the modern system of criminal prosecution. Second, into devising a more practical account of how a non-punitive justice might actually work in contemporary circumstances. These will be my subjects in the remaining programs of this series. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part one of Justice as Sanctuary, a profile of Dutch criminologist Herman Bianchi. David Cayley will be back next week at this time with part two of the series. The engineer for tonight's program was Rod Crocker, associate producer Kate Pemberton, producer Richard Handler. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. A printed transcript of tonight's program is available for $8. You can order the whole three-part series for $19. Prices include taxes and shipping. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Next on CBC Radio is the Hourly News, followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers. Thank you.